Oddly enough, Pat, it's very early in the year to be talking about hurling. Or very late. See, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, it's very early to be talking about club hurling. Usually, this stuff doesn't really enter my consciousness until about Halloween-ish. Are you saying that the, the rework championship structures have worked? They've piqued your interest? In no, no. I'm, say, I'm saying that this, would, this uh, situation would still be the same if it wasn't for the fact that uh, both uh, Kula and Thurlis got beaten yesterday. Yeah, a couple of reign of terrors ending. Like. Kula were going for four in a row in Dublin. Yeah. Thurlis Sarsfields were going for five in a row in Tipperary. More importantly, I suppose, Kula were going for three in a row All-Ireland titles yeah. and got taken down by Kel McCudd. Yeah, a um, huge result for Kill McCudd and Anthony Daly taking over uh, Kill McCudd and dethroning Kula because Kula have been, you know, relatively untouchable. I know they lost a game early in the championship last year, but it was early on in a round robin and they were able to come back from it. But uh, yeah, when it has got to the business end of the Dublin championship in the last few years and indeed the All-Irelands, they have, they have just been unstoppable. Yeah, it- What's kind of fascinating too about that game is that lots of people would like to see uh, Kula's manager Matty Kenny in the mm. Dublin hot seat and you can't help but think after seeing yesterday with Kilmacud managed by Anthony Daly would he ever would he consider going back? It is it, it is a fascinating wrinkle I, I, am, I was kind of off last week and um, hadn't really been, been across it so I did have to ask you this morning does, was that Dublin job filled while, while I wasn't paying attention uh, and it wasn't um, so yeah that, that is interesting where that's going to go now I've always felt with Daly though that if Daly wanted to do it again he'd just do it he would just do it you know I, I think there's great fellow feeling there with with certainly players and and I think with the county board so yeah I don't know where that's going to go I think Anthony Daly is such a terrific coach and hurling man to use a very annoying yeah. phrase but he is a terrific coach it is surprising that he's not involved at inter-county level but it's not surprising that he's regularly been involved with highly yeah. thought of club teams and underage teams in recent years I mean he did great work down in Limerick with their underage hurlers yeah I've always got the sense though that that's his own choice. Yeah. As soon as he would ever put his name out and say, "Here, I want to do an intercounty gig again," they'd be beaten down his door. There'd be three or four different counties beaten down his door. I always would have thought. Yeah, he probably just have to send up the flare. And what about in Tipperary? Thurlis won seven of the last nine, and uh, now they're gone. Not even in the final. Yeah, uh, and Nina, uh, Aerog Nina, and Clanalty Ross Moore final is what we have coming down the tracks now. Totally novel final. Never, never the two of them were never in a Tipperary final before. Yeah, I was surprised actually that that was the case. I, I think Aerog have one title ever in '95, mm. and Clanalty's last title was also in the '90s. Mm. So it is a kind of a throwback. But Thurlis have been dominating to such a degree. In Tipperary, I think freshening it up might be a good thing for everybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Except for Thurles, obviously. Well, maybe even for Thurles, because for all their dominance in, in Tip, they they have never converted that, really, in in, in the latter stages. They've even struggled uh, in Munster. Mm. Uh, and... and I've, yeah, I've, I've always, I, I always tune into them. I find myself tuned into them around this time of year because I end up going down to like a Munster semi-final or something. That, and they've played some great ones against, I think, Ballygunner a couple of times. And um, who also won yesterday. They, their reign of terror continues in, in Waterford. They made it five in a row and have beaten five different teams in the last five finals. Yeah, that's impressive, yeah. Uh, actually. 
but yeah, Thurlis, yeah, I, I wonder how, how they'll come back now. Um, but that'll be an interesting tip, county final. But as I say, Pat, it's very early in the year to be talking club hurling. We'll get back to that in around Halloween when all these things sort themselves out. Far more this time of year is the Premier League, the opium of the masses that'll carry us through the through the winter. Emmett will be here later to talk about Man City Liverpool yesterday. And the Nations League. And the Nations League. The senseless Nations League as yeah. uh, Jurgen Klopp has uh, damned it. But first, rugby has been back a while, Pat. But now, now we care about it. Because the serious stuff has started. The serious stuff started. The first game of the season that the general populace will have tuned into happened on Saturday. Uh, John O'Sullivan and Gavin O'Comiskey are here to tell us about Munster Leinster. How are you doing, lads? Right. Good, good. Uh, Gav, what did you make of it? You you were saying in the paper this morning that uh, at times it felt like a bit of a, like a baseball game because it was a bit stop starty. People were streaming in and out. A little rant first. Is that okay? Yeah. Knock yourself out. The, um, there was no ref links for this game. Big Leinster Munster match at Aviva, and we didn't, we couldn't hear what was happening. So. All the reporters, you might as well have been at home covering the game because you could hear more, you know what I mean? Comiskey slams. Um, yeah, but look, it's just the way it goes. We probably, what can you do? Uh, but the fact of the matter was then, so when all the stopping and starting was going, instead of us being able to be tuned in and knowing exactly what was happening, we could, it was like, there's all these there's all these massive gaps where you don't know what's going on, you know, and, you're really, and there was a lot of them with Ben Whitehouse and his touch judges who... Actually, not Munster fans are, have, would have the sh- knives sharpened for Ben Whitehouse. We'll get to that. I'd be more focused on what the touch judges kind of let him down. Mm. But So if you looked around the stadium now, people come to these big Aviva Stadium matches to get entertained. And it was a, there was a constant stream in and out to the food and beverages for food and drinks. And at no point did it turn into a like a sing-song or a gripping thing or like like obviously Joey Carberry didn't get any booing because mm. that's just not Joey you were very you were very annoyed at that that Joey didn't get booed I just thought it was interesting like that any other place in the world any other sport in the world you leave to your main rivals and you come back a couple of weeks later and there was like a smattering of applause almost all the Leinster fans are looking at him thinking oh, he still wants to play for us really <laughs> yeah he probably yeah. does so he got hit in fairness the Leinster players took him out whenever chance Luke McGrath got him with a special one but it was just a real kind of a seven inning stretch baseball kind of feel to the place mm. um, um, this is as much down to the supporters as it is the um, the TMO funny enough, and the, John, the referee it looked uh, I watched it at home and it looked it did look quite intense on TV like it looked the Certainly, it didn't look like the the kind of atmosphere that you're talking about, Gab. Like I'm it, talking about when it's the stoppages because yeah. there was so many of them. You know yeah. what I mean? I think there was an element of of the physicality in the game and the intensity in the game, and that led to stoppages as well mm. because there were there were huge collisions and and both teams went at each other. Munster uh, initially kind of very direct. Leinster, I've Munster at seventy percent of the possession, so Leinster are defending for long periods of time. They were very ing- aggressive in terms of their line speed. And so it was very kind of that the game took place in the middle third of the pitch for a lot of it. And then it's only when there was some loose kicking by both halfbacks that the game kind of broke broke up a little bit and you saw an opportunity for, for both teams to use a little bit more ball and go wider. So there's a clear there's a kind of rugby cliche about earning the right to go wide. Uh, the game mm. was dominated by earning the right to go wide for large tranches of it. And particularly, and again, when Munster got into the Leinster 22, they had numbers up out wide and, and they chose to kind of hammer away, hammer away, hammer away. Gavin, how much of an effect on the outcome did the referee have? As I said, it, it was Ben Whitehouse is a good referee, and he's going to be uh, doing it at international level. He's on the on that way. He's on the fast track. Um, 
he's sim- very similar to Nigel Owens in the way he kind of communicates and is like, you know, it's kind of theatrical and all that. Um, I think he was really badly let down by mainly his touch judges, especially for the game swung on one thing. It was the hit, um, when the ball came loose from Robbie Henshaw and Keitrell scooped it up and went away for a runaway try. This was like five minutes into <coughs> the second half. Uh, a runaway try there would have made it like he would have gone in under the post would have been 2019 yeah it was 2012 yeah. it was 42nd minute um, Sammy Ireland Arnold who's a quality player got a good hit in on Henshaw um, he, the, the touch judge came in straight away and said deliberate knock on yeah. penalty Leinster they just needed to just relax let it go Keith Rose has gone on his intercept it's definitely not going to get stuck it was Reach Ruddock tracking him I think so the try is scored and then you go okay let's go upstairs and they didn't now the faces on uh, James Lowe who was sensational by the way but his face was <laughs> laughing going oh big call lads uh, CJ Stander and Peter Homani th- th- to get the, the two of them looking at you like that is just a dangerous dangerous place yeah. to be they were just disgusted as well because it was just <laughs> but isn't it was just there... human error that was supposed to be removed from the yeah, game yeah exactly you know? but isn't this the thing on that that aren't they supposed to to allow play to develop because they have this this facility to to bring things back well, I, I mean not not to compare it to the to the NFL but that's what they do in the NFL mm-hmm. they allow players to play themselves out knowing that score all scoring plays are reviewed everything can be reviewed and, br- and brought back sorry John that was my whole thing like they're, they're going TMO all the time they kept going TMO all mm-hmm. the time that they were probably and they were just heaping pressure on themselves almost there's a difference there was just one difference in that instant the the touch judge was adamant that Right, what he had seen took place, so he was it's impossible to be honest. Yeah. So it wasn't a question of we should go upstairs or we should consult the TMO. It's this is what I saw, this is what I'm saying to you. So Ben Whitehouse doesn't doesn't for one moment think mm. oh I should go to the TMO because normally normally in these matches nobody makes a decision. Everybody wants to go yes, to the TMO. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was a case where the information came in. It was a definite knock on. It's a bloody blah, all that sort of stuff. So there was, there was no doubt in the communication, mm. and that's where they were misled. And, and Gav's right; it was a it was a poor decision. So the change in the TMO on the, on the touch power uh, of the TMO for November that they're going to test it out again, which uh, which is something that has to be applauded because they're going to go the referee for tries and foul play uh, is they're reducing his control and it's not going to be TMO in the person's ear. But again, this isn't is solved. This, this was the touch TMO? judges. <laughs> Know what he was doing, but like the, the touch judges let made Ben Whitehouse look like a bad ref. That was the way my those changes in November a view to speeding up the delays that you were talking about. Yeah, is that what it's yeah, for? Yeah, yeah. It's, this is aware, like it's been happening. It, this is coming from the southern hemisphere, the, the hissy fit about this because it was like some crazy calls during Super Rugby this year for yellow cards. And uh, they, they, it's coming about New Zealand and Australia, they're going here. Look, we this is you, you reckon they have to be really careful. We talked about this throughout the summer about Gaelic football, you have to be really careful about protecting the, the game as a spectacle. And like they, if you if you don't get it right, people are just going to get bored. That was that was my point without my ref link, you know. The game uh, itself, John. So Leinster played what will six of that starting team, seven of that starting team play against Wasps now on the weekend. Like it was certainly not, you know, it, it, as everybody knows, not their full strength side. What does the the fact that they won with with that sort of depth tell us about the the gap between them and Munster? I think Munster will feel a little bit, and rightly so, feel a little bit hard done by in the day in terms of the refereeing decisions. I thought they played well for large tranches of the match. They dominated possession. They dominated territory. You might say on a couple of occasions they got a little bit narrow in attack when there were numbers up out wide and they could have scored tries. And that's something that there's a little bit 
of evolution required in the way they play. And also, you've got to remember that they, Johan van Graan has, has kind of tried various different combinations at 10, 12, 13. And that little bit of experience and cohesion comes with playing together. So he will make a decision on what is best. Well, Joey Carberry will play 10 and who... who Coggan was good, wasn't he? Yeah, over Levy. Mm. he did. Yeah, he was very good. And he's a very good player and he's injury free. He had a knee injury. Young Munster, very good. Very good underage international. Very strong player. Good footwork. Sammy Arnold is the same. Has a, a very good pedigree at, at underage international level as well. And you've got obviously Rory Scannell and you've Jack Otaute who's coming back after six months off. So he has to decide who his best uh, if you like 12 midfield combination is. And there's sometimes as well where Joey Carberry who's a brilliant talent has just got to take a tiny leaf out of Johnny Sexton's book and go demand ball in certain mm. situations. There was a there was a hesitancy a couple of times. Uh, I remember there was the period just leading up to half time when Munster were on the front foot, front foot, foot, and it was coming into like it, it, the clock had even turned into uh, into the forty minutes plus. Munster were on the front foot, and even if they weren't going to get a score there, they needed to get to half time, whatever it was, seventeen twelve down or whatever. You know, uh, and just a couple of times, like one of one of Carby's guys kind of ran in front of him. There's just you could see that the timing is still just a little bit off there, and it ended up they ended up giving away a penalty before half time and going in eight points down rather than five points down, and it was just down to this. It's just hesitancy, this timing not being quite in for him yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you look at, like, they, they've real quality at wide. Andrew Conway, Darren Sweetenham, Keith Earls. You have to you have to back yourself at times that you can put the ball through the hands and give these guys a one-on-one. Mm. That's what Leinster do when they're, you know, that's what they did with James Lowe. And they gave him a, a one-on-three in, in one case. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But they still back him and they still oh, look for so those good. opportunities. And well, I think that's... I, Evolution-wise, evolution for Munster, I think that's just rounding out the development and evolution of what they're trying to do. And I think it will will come with time. I think it was a, a positive step forward for Munster. They dominated, like I say, territory and possession. They produced a decent performance in a game, which was there was a lot of kind of intensities. I just think that there are things that need to be tweaked and that, that will come when there is a decision made on, on who's the, the best 12, 10, 12, 13, what combination is suits them best there. Mm. Second hardest place to go, hardest place probably the RDS, yeah. Second hardest place to go in Europe right now is Sandy Park, I think. I think Leinster won their European Cup last year off their two games against Exeter, especially the one over there when they took the 40 phases they defended. Munster, at the moment, are going there, are not going to win that game. But they're going with this really, really dark, dark mood now after they felt hard done by, especially for not getting the penalty try as well themselves. And and they feel like they, they should have been much more in this game. So at least they have kind of a, well, we, we were, that there's a little bit of a cause thing building for them. But they're going to a place that um, I think um, Sopawanga, the All Black Wasps out half, came off the pitch uh, talking about the Exeter pack being bigger than the Springboks uh, wow. recently, he was just, it, there is they're just a big bunch of ogres and they're almost unbeatable down there. So that's as tough a game as Munster can expect. Gavin, you're very impressed with James Lowe <coughs> on, on the night itself. Why isn't he playing for New Zealand? Pace, I'd imagine, but also I. So I kind of asked about about this, but um, same thing with Bundy Aki. What are the what, what are these two lads? They're clearly world class, and now one of them is a world class inside centre for Ireland, and the other one's going to be a world class left winger for Ireland in like 2020, I think it is. The supposedly they've got both got great characters as well, right? And maybe there was an attitude problem when they were younger that 
kind of weren't against them and they weren't maps that could have been also Bundy didn't come through till quite late but uh, James Lowe it could have been underage structures that they just went oh look the fun loving kind of a bit crazy kind of a guy really 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 good the best thing you could have in sport you know and um, maybe that worked against them as a kid but also pace if you look at the all black wingers like they're great they're insane like right, yeah. I mean he doesn't have sprinter sprinters pace but he has Every single other tool, the aerial stuff. He beats the first man. He's so powerful. Like, like up against Conway and all these guys. Like he, he they, they should be. They match him. They rise to him because he's so talented. And like his second try, the finish for his second try. Well, Jan Klein bumping, putting him into touch to get that over. Just world class. But even beyond that, Gav, he he had to go from a not even a standing start. He had to go back for the ball because Earls had had got a touch on it, and so he. W- was stationary looking the wrong way yeah, yeah. when he collected the ball and still had to turn and score. So last year, uh, because of the two into three rule, Leo Cullen didn't had him in, put him into the stand because he wanted James and Gibson Park on his bench. I don't think that's changed yet, unfortunately. I don't think there's a scrum half there. There's Hugh and um, Hugh second in the Belvedere scrum Sullivan. half. Hugh Sullivan and Patrick Patterson are coming through in the ranks. Leinster have a bunch of scrum halves coming through. But Nick McCarthy would be the, the obvious one because he did it last year and he's back as wrestling. But do you go with Nick McCarthy? on your bench so that means I think they have to make it they might again not pick James Lowe for a big European game which just Justin seemed to make the thing is Larmer's I think got an injury now as well so I think they go with either probably Nick McCarthy on the bench James and Gibson Park misses out because you got to have Lowe on the pitch and Scott Fardy it's that little mm. tricky problem another thing is when we look at all these things Leinster are going to lose another player soon probably in midfield or the wings going to be sent down to Munster or Ulster whoever needs them yeah, yeah, that's all happening now I'd imagine I'd say Nusifor has come in again just probably on a Sunday morning when Leo Cullen's arranging his European weeks <laughs> to go by the way we're taking this guy from you I'd say that's about to happen because they have too many Strength and depth means they're going to end up like subsidising all the provinces eventually. They already do. Well, they do. Like, to, to 11, 11 Leinster players, in the, 11 Leinster either educated or players in the Connacht squad. Munster, Ulster have nine on their books. Ulster, Munster have loads. The, all the key positions. This is the way it works now. And all the, the talent is coming from the Leinster school system. And, and imagine a lot of the extra investing in cash, similar to way Dublin get extra money, I'd say underage coaching probably goes into the Leinster schools and club systems because that's where the talent is. But yeah, no, the Leinster squad will... You'll look and see who's not playing for Leinster this season, wings and centres, and I guarantee you those guys will be um, playing in different colours next season. Let's talk about the weekend coming up, John. Uh, Champions Cup is starting. Leinster favourites uh, for the tournament. Uh, Munster down around 12-1, to I think. Is he 12-1 to or 8-1? to 12-1, to yeah, about fifth favourites. Uh, Leinster start on Friday night in the RDS against Wasps. Yeah, it'll be it'll be an interesting one. Wasps won four out of six, I think, in the Premiership. They they average about thirty five points a game. I think they concede about thirty four points a game. So um, they have that that kind of firepower to score tries, but they're also pretty porous defensively. It's it's a difficult one. They came to the RDS before, obviously, and won. Uh, and I think Leinster will be. I think some of the sorry the selection for the Munster match was reflected in what's taking place six yeah, days later. Yeah. And this is a hugely important part of the season for all the Irish provinces because this Europe defines the seasons mm. they've had, and it gives you a momentum in the latter stages of the Pro 14 and stuff like. You take care of business before it starts, and then you try and take care of business to give you an opportunity 
in October to go through the back-to-back matches in December and have that momentum going into January and it all kicks on from there. So, As ever, you know, the, the <laughs> all for all their their resources with Leinster, like, as ever, like, picking a back row. I was going to say that, yeah. The, is, make John do it. Is the most insane. I'm going to make his both do it. Who's, who, who should start? Who will start? I think on form at the moment, uh, you'd have to pick Josh van der Fleer at seven. You pick Jack Conan at eight. And then you have a long, hard chat about who your second row pairing is and who you pick at six. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that's the, the way it's fallen at the moment. Uh, I think that uh, Sean O'Brien will be involved in the matchday squad. Reese Relic was uh, Reese Relic has been excellent when mm. he's played this season. It's a question of where Scott Fardy goes uh, in relation. Does he go in the second row? Or does, does he go, go in the there? second row or does he uh, go at six? Did he drop Dev Toner. Well, that's that's the that's Leo's the that's uh, I suppose the decision for Leo is is what wh- you look at what you look at how you match up with wasps and where you need. You didn't you mention need. Dan Levy there. I don't think Sean O'Brien can be put in the squad because Dan Levy starts at seven. Van der Flyer then is on the bench. Rudd, I'd argue say Dan six. Levy's had one game. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so you go with Sean O'Brien over Dan Levy. I go with just slightly more game time. I, I think Sean O'Brien is a fantastic player, but I, I think Sean I O'Brien think doesn't make the squad. And Van der Flyer either starts or bench. I think if you, if you're if you're maximising with Fardy bench as well, then the uh, Josh Van der Flyer effect, if you like, you look at the number of tackles. I mean, he has been Jack, Jack Conan's been superb for Leinster this season. And he started uh, eight, yeah, slim down version of, of him. He said it himself uh, in an interview at the weekend. Actually, was interesting, and uh, he has been very very good. But Van der Flyer, if He's you're going to maximise uh, Van der Flyer's ability and impact, sorry, on a match, then you start him. You know, he did very well when he came on against Munster, made his usual kind of bucket load of tackles, you know, got over mm, the ball. Mm. But that's what you want against Wasps. If you're playing a team that plays that expansive style, likes to play a fast place uh, game, you get your open side, genuine open side, and you have him kind of latched onto every ball at the breakdown and try and slow they're down. They're not allowed to play Fardy at six. They're, they're not allowed. That's basically part of the rules. They <laughs> sneaked him in there at the end of last season. So Fardy on the bench because you need to... Dev Toner's just playing so good. Yeah, yeah. And James Ryan is just... Yeah. He definitely starts. So Fardy, who's obviously world class, and I wonder if Jack will come looking for him eventually. Fardy uh, bench. Well, I think... I, you, I hear your argument about Van der Flaer. Your, your Honour, you just I look just at don't see Sean O'Brien getting into this match. Fardy played six last year. Mm. Like, there's no way. If it's expediency-driven. There's yeah, no way the RFU injuries as the excuse that time, though, you know. There's no way the RFU are going to turn around and go, well, you know what we'll do? We'll handicap Leinster slightly. Um, God, Leinster's wealth of, of resources <laughs> co- can cause such a debate. Gavin, um, Munster are playing away to Exeter at, at quarter past three on Saturday. How do you see them getting on there? Um... I think they could be in for a world of pain, but they're ready for it. They, I think he knows his team now. I think he, I think he pretty much played his team largely uh, on the weekend, um, and for the reason. But it's the, it's such a tough place to go. Like, I, I, I think you disagree with me, John, but I do. I, I do not know how Leinster got out of that. I think that was their best performance to get out of that game last year down in Sandy Park. Like they, what they did to defend. I don't know if Munster can go 30, 40 phases against this team. I don't think anyone can. Like we saw the uh, South Africans just wilted under the All Black pressure in Pretoria last weekend. I think Denser are the only team that can hold off a team for that amount of time. And Exeter just keep coming and coming with Steenson at out half. So a bonus point is a good result for Munster. Okay. 
Why do, what do you disagree with him on? I think I agree with Gav about the, 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 uh, that Leinster was Leinster's best performance, yeah. but I think they were slightly off. I think they were shocked by how well Leinster defended, how disciplined they were and the performance that yeah. Leinster produced. I think that surprised Exeter. If you look at the reverse fixture the following week, they came to the Viva Stadium and for 50, 55, 60 minutes, they were winning that game. And I think that that was, having got over the shock of what had happened the previous week and knowing that they had to win in the Aviva Stadium, they produced a, a performance that was more representative of the Exeter that had done well in the Premiership up to that date. I actually, I do think Munster can go down there. I think if they can tweak their, their uh, game, if they can be a little bit more, if they have a little bit more courage in the way they play, I think they can they can put it up to Exeter down there. Exeter have a brilliant rolling mall. They've got to keep, they've got to, try and avoid having lineouts inside their own 22. They've got to make sure that they scrummage as well as they did against Leinster. And you can argue the toss about uh, the legalities of scr- uh, scrummaging, and we're not going to get into it here. But you Archer know. did well, didn't he? Well, I, I, don't, I was looking at it, and I still couldn't figure out who was boring in and who wasn't boring in. <laughs> yeah. And I don't think Ben Whitehouse knew who was boring Archer got in a hard time. guessing a couple <laughs> yeah, of times, all right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Archer got a hard time. Did I give it to the last time? <laughs> all right, you could have three penalties in a row. But like even, even that point where... You know, uh, I know uh, Leinster were annoyed afterwards about the, um, the Theo was yeah some he... of the decisions in that respect. But I, I think Munster have a chance. I, I genuinely do think they have a chance. I think they're not just travelling to make up the numbers. Excellent. Listen, lads, thanks a million. Uh, we'll get on to the sorrowful mysteries of uh, Ulster season uh, some other day. Sorry, very we'll quickly, we should mention the fact that Albie Madison could be injured, which changes everything for Munster. Well, if, yeah, because we don't know what's going wrong with Conor Murray still. So, therefore, we will see how that all breaks down. Thank you very much, John. Thank you very much, Gavin. We will see you again. Cheers. So, we had a good old-fashioned Sunday, Pat, sitting watching Giants, Titans of the Premier League. One and two in the Premier League, and they take each other on and bore us all senseless. Yeah. Emmett Malone is in. Um, Man City, Liverpool. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It was one of those games, I, I for the first 20 minutes, I was kind of wrapped looking at it kind of riveted going it like, dawned on you that this yeah, wasn't well, a very good game well yeah. precisely yeah, 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 it, it, yeah. It, that's almost exactly that the, the magic of uh, Sky <laughs> and you know well uh, and these I'm two not, teams I'm, not, I'm certainly not subscribing to the theory that it's all a load of overhyped yeah. crap you know but uh, but certainly you know you do go in with expectations and it does you know gradually when, when they're being unfulfilled on the scale that they were with this game yesterday it does take a while for it to kind of well like, it does cause break, because you know, because the, of the games that they played last season and you're sitting watching it for yeah. 20 minutes and you're going alright everybody trying to work each other out here God, this is yeah. like when they do work each other out this, and then like literally you're kind of going well this is actually just just kind of shite maybe shite shite's overdoing oh, it overdoing it you know I, look I mean it, it seemed to relentlessly have the potential to kind of burst into <laughs> yeah. life there was uh, played a good pace and you know there was some good kind, good, there was some good passing in it but in almost every instance that broke down it was littered with mistakes uh, two sides you don't normally associate with kind of carelessly surrendering possession doing mm. it over and over and over again I saw which one was it afterwards um, uh, was it Klopp afterwards saying that you know uh, um, if you give away possession against uh, team Manchester City, it almost certainly ends in a chance. Uh, Guardiola, uh, yeah. Uh, was it? Yeah, yeah, they, yeah actually, yeah. I think they both yeah. said something very similar. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, certainly for the first half, almost nothing ended in chances. I don't mm. think the goal, either goalkeeper had a goal save to make it because mm. because somebody would make a mistake, they'd give away possession in the mm. f- in the final third. Mm. Uh, the other team would make it to the final third and then give away possession. You know, mm. a really careless ball. So it was uh, it was very disappointing. Uh, I like it was better in the second half. I think, mm. um, but I think. 
the, the, the underlying it all was a sense that two teams who you expect to try to win at all costs suddenly decided that, you know, the key thing here was not to, to lose, you know, and there was a perceptible shift in the mm. way both sides played. That was surprising, given that they're two teams that we think of as being really gung-ho. But Liverpool this year are definitely a lot more controlled and... Basically, Pep put out a team with the handbrake on for once, which you don't really associate. Well, with a little bit. I mean, certainly there wasn't the kind of you know freely overlapping fullbacks that you associate with their normal attacking game, and um, and they were you know they were playing against a team that they knew were possibly the best or the other best uh, counter attacking side in the Premier League, and uh, and you could see that that was playing on their minds the whole time. So there wasn't the kind of absolute commitment because if you're playing like if Manchester City are playing the bottom. 16 in the Premier League they know that they can overcommit and, and, and get away with it you know because their players are so quick to get back so you know um, and, and, and so adept at covering for each other that they'll snuff out you know the, the kind of the best that, that most of the teams in the Premier League can do but they were you know very conscious clearly of what that, that front three at, at Liverpool can do and the speed at which the, the team moves the ball to them so you know it was it was a different game it was a disappointing game for all of that it was I think interesting tactically mm. um, uh, but but it was inter- I think it was interesting that so early in the season, so you know, um, that both of these clearly see each other as, as as rivals. And I think that point was made on on the TV coverage quite a lot. You know that that um, that a year or two, um, for some of the recent seasons, that really there there was such a gap between yeah. them that uh, that Liverpool. I mean, their 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 aspirations in the league were different, and and that in some ways sort of freed up both both sides to have a have a bit of a go. You know, I thought uh, definitely as it wore on, City definitely had more menace about them. Yeah. Without- I thought- Maybe without yeah. obviously the missed penalty is that was the glaring yeah. opportunity of the game, but definitely like and and Mares obviously misses the penalty, but I thought actually in general play he kind of had Andy Robertson where he wanted him a couple Mares. of times. Yeah, 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 sure. yeah really yeah. D- down the left. Yeah, I thought I, I thought generally uh, City's. City posed a bigger threat as you say certainly there was a 20 minute spell in the second period where I thought they were well on top and and that they really should have scored mm. uh, Maris had one chance he kind of pulled it uh, you know it wasn't a great chance he did very well to, get, well to get, get ahead it, of yeah. Robertson yeah but then he hooks it across the face of the goal not sure that um, that it wouldn't have been saved if it had been on target mm. um, but uh, but yeah I did think they were the, the better side during that spell most of what Liverpool had fell to Salah and Salah right now is a long long way off the, uh, the player that he was last season I mean a a lot of his game last season was based on on the confidence that was just flowing through his veins and it seemed that you know every time he let loose on the on the turn or running at full pace or whatever his ball was his, his shot or cross or whatever it was was on the money it was spot on target and perfectly weighted and uh, yesterday we saw him we had examples of getting both terribly wrong repeatedly missed the target and even with crosses and stuff like that massively overhating them uh, he just looks like a player who's just I mean you know he's such a tremendous player but he just looks you know well off uh, well off the pace in, in his head really at the moment uh, but you know it's the sort of thing again they could click I mean we see um, uh, we see it all the time with strikers you know they get they get a couple of goals and um, and suddenly they're confident again so Bernie Roney I'm not I'm not I'm not sorry I'm not 100% sure that, that Salah will re, re, ever recapture the form of, of last season but he's certainly going to be better than he is right now Bernie Roney had a line yesterday in the Guardian to say that there's an imbalance to Salah's talent that at the moment he looks like a supercar with a wonky pram wheel on one wing and you kind of get it because yeah. he, he did lots right there was one yeah. beautiful piece of movement that took him away from Laporte to get onto sure. a ball over the top and if it was last season you just knew Ederson had come out too far and last season he would have 
lofted it over him yeah. and just and it would have been a way of celebrating mm. and this year he kind of tried to hammer it as hard as he could and he but flew uh, up it's interesting I think there's a lot of the, the Salah that we saw in his first spell in England at Chelsea uh, at the moment you know um, uh, judgments that look poor with hindsight like that because essentially he doesn't pull off the option that he takes and uh, and Mourinho at Chelsea decided he wasn't good enough and, uh, and, I, and I think at that stage that wasn't an unfair assessment of the situation you know they weren't they, were, they weren't team that uh, the club that kind of bought people for two three years down the line so they, he got a chance on the basis of the sh- of the form that he'd shown and uh, um, they didn't fancy him after after nine ten months last year that looked like a catastrophic exactly yeah uh, right now but it's so amazing much. isn't it and like fair enough it's only been whatever yeah, seven or eight games sure. so and he's coming so off can. he's coming off a disappointing summer front and of, an big, injury, yeah, yeah which was caused by the injury yeah. uh, possibly trying to come back too fast from that because he wanted to feature in the World Cup and so and and it's devastated is 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 uh, Champions League final there's a whole lot to kind of shake off um, but uh, but wouldn't Liverpool it need him to shake it yeah, off yeah exactly yeah. Well, wouldn't it be amazing like you know if, if, if it just goes on like this that, that he he'll almost always have that sort of four month period where he was the best footballer mm. in the world or looked like it yeah, you yeah, know yeah. Uh, but then just the regret this is a kind of regression and, to the mean now and, and, and I, you know what look I think it's I, I'm on the I, I have a vote for in the European Footballer of the Year mm. the UEFA award and you know then there's, there's yeah, obviously we've, we've uh, we, we have the other awards around now mm. the FIFA and the Ballon d'Or and, um, and, and Salah has been right up there now I didn't I didn't go for Salah I, I'm not sure I can't remember it was a while ago I don't think I had him in my top three maybe he was third in, in my vote for UEFA um, but um, but that's and uh, Messi wasn't second I, obviously uh, Modric was was, mm. was first I think but uh, but I think that that's the difference you know that these guys you, you look at Messi and Ronaldo the way they've dominated mm. those awards in the last uh, 10 years really you know they do it every year every they year. just come back they have an incredible season they uh, you know go off and play a tournament or they don't and they're back with their clubs and they do it all over mm. again and that's uh, that's you know you look at Salah and, and what he did last year was absolutely phenomenal you know but he's struggling now and, and that just shows how difficult it is to keep those sort of standards up mm. um, Afterwards uh, Jurgen Klopp had the uh, uh, great line about uh, that the, his players now go off to play in the Nations Cup the most pointless pointless competition in, in European football Yeah uh, I think it's I, I don't think it's the most pointless at all I think it's mm. the most convoluted um, the rewards for it I mean they've really had to they've really had to work very 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 hard to try and you know construct um, a system of rewarding teams for, for doing well in this tournament but they have come up with something tangible they've they've undermined their regular qualifying for the European Championships in the process which now looks you know it has been devalued by this uh, the, 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 the structure of the tournament is a mess the qualifying places that go to um, the bit that end in qualifying places going to uh, teams for the European Championships like it's just a shambles. By the, mm. t- by the time we're finished with this, when we retrospectively kind of construct a you know a chart with how the teams got there, it's just going to look ridiculous. But what we saw last month was that these were games that you know notionally would they're they're notionally replacing friendly games, and they were competitive. And uh, managers cared about them, and I think that's the point Klopp is making mm. that you know if these were friendly games, he'd bring it up a manager saying these guys aren't quite right. Could you leave them on the sideline, or you know maybe only give them half an hour at the end or whatever? Yeah, and the manager saying no, I can't do that because these matches now matter. And uh, definitely that was shown. Like I mean, Wales wouldn't have bothered to beat us in Cardiff. The yes, way that 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 they did. Still uh, probably would have though. Uh, they would have had. <laughs> <laughs> it in them quite possibly but they wouldn't have 
they wouldn't have bothered getting yeah. into fourth gear. You know, they just wouldn't have been arsed. Um, but but in the circumstances, it was a competitive game. Everybody was up for it. And and so from that point of view, I think it's mission accomplished. Well, by and very high uh, on the list of the managers that it matters to will be our manager. Yeah. Uh, this coming week, uh, we play Wales next Tuesday and Denmark this Saturday. Yeah. Uh, are we back back on the roller coaster here with with O'Neill and Keane? Um, I don't know where exactly on the roller coaster we are. We might still be hurtling downhill at great speed, screaming very loudly with our hands in the air. Uh, um, it's it's hard to know. I um, mean, he was asked the other day whether he'd, he'd feel that he'd be under pressure if these two results went ba- badly on the basis that he, he kind of actually, uh, the guy who was asking the question didn't quite a- answer it he or didn't quite finish it, you know, so it was kind of left hanging, you know, and, and Martin is like turning the screw a bit, like, you know, just uh, turning the knife a bit, like just, just looking at him, waiting for him to finish. Yeah, yeah kind of a love word. Where's this going? Like, where, where, what could you possibly be suggesting? And so, um, so eventually, he, he, you know, uh, uh, he was he was asked essentially whether he would um, whether he would be under pressure, whether his, his job might be under threat, and uh, uh, on the, off the back of two very bad uh, results, and and he kind of quite confidently, you know, pointed out that uh, the, the the two bad results were ten months apart, and um, and there was lots of extenuating circumstances, and that you know we're going into very different games now. Um, but the reality is, we're going into these games without key players. Uh, uh, we're going into them against two, the two teams who've inflicted those very bad results uh, most recently, and uh, the situation isn't hugely promising. So, um, uh, yeah, look, um, Martin O'Neill might wish that we were all playing meaningless friendlies right now because uh, they, they, they tend to go a bit better. You do wonder if the Nations League is going to lead to a greater turnover of managers at international level precisely because of that. Yeah. Because we put greater store in these games now. And maybe you could get away with the losing two meaningless friendlies, but lose two of these games and suddenly the night's Yeah, and what, well, and what you had was uh, friendlies always gave uh, teams, a little bit like Ireland, I think we'd fit into that category, the opportunity to take pressure off. Because if you took them more seriously than the other team, there's a pretty decent chance you get a good result in them, you know. And so you had Brian Kerr, who, who did prior. Prioritize friendlies, mm-hmm. and for a while we were we were kind of Ranked. climbing the ranks yeah, rank, yeah. rankings very steadily. Uh, we were world beaters in friendlies, you know, um, and uh, we won some very some very big games and, and uh, got massive crowds to them. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And there was a real buzz around the whole team. And so I think that, you know, if, if you, the manager is under, under a little bit of pressure, you can restore a little bit of the feel-good factor by, by taking the friendlies seriously. I'm not sure how many fr- managers have ever got sacked. Yeah, I, I take your point. That because of a poor run of friendlies, although it has happened, I think, occasionally, some of them are more embarrassing than others. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, I, I think we might see, uh, I might see, might see a little bit. Maybe, maybe it'll be in the lower-ranked sides because um, if you're now, I don't know, a Montenegro, or something like that and you're in the third or fourth division of this Nations League then there are certainly teams who have a serious chance of qualifying for uh, I, I, like, geez, I've, I've dealt into this at some length and, and, and I have, but not for a while so so you know I mean the team ranked I think it's 50th in, in no not 50th 40th in Europe is now notionally seeded to qualify for the mm. for the European Championships which is a ludicrous not notion true. you know yeah. uh, that's we left out they've devalued the finals tournament <laughs> as well we left that out um, um, so so look I mean I, I thought uh, a month ago this tournament the, the Nations League had absolutely nothing to go for it, but I have to say that that you know the you know watching highlights of most of the games and Ireland's games you know badly as as the game in Cardiff went for us it was a very different animal to um, to the sort of friendly that would be normally filling in between campaigns um, but yeah there are a lot of problems with it and I think yeah for the for the perhaps the Montenegros or the the I don't know Bulgarias or Scotland or suddenly now Scotland really see themselves uh, they're in Division Three and they really see themselves having a uh, having a serious chance of, of qualifying through the Nations League for a European Championship and you know that that that's 
that, that may be something Alex McLeish eventually comes to regret our, uh, it's early in the week of course um, and our game is on Saturday have we, what sort of sense have we of who's available who's around uh, well, it's a kind of disappointing news on that front, I guess. I mean, he, he named a he named a very you know his usual kind of eighty man squad <laughs> last week, and uh, and James Coleman and Robbie Brady didn't make it, which is which is not good. I mean, normally I, I I kind of you know previewed the squad announcement saying that they would be back, and and that was on the basis that both managers, both club managers, had suggested they'd be involved with the first teams uh, the weekend that just weekend, gone, yeah. yeah. And uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, behind the scenes, both had had setbacks. So um, so Robbie, both now are a couple of weeks away. I think uh, Everton now are they're talking about Coleman possibly being involved the first games after the international right. break but you know it's not like O'Neill to leave a player at his club if, uh, if if it's if it's touch and go so he he readily accepted that neither of them were in good shape there was some confusion over Stephen Ward um O'Neill had to be told by his press officer. He, he mentioned to us that about Ward being in the squad. We had to point out to him that he actually wasn't in the squad. Uh, a kind of ding-dong ensued between uh, O'Neill and the press officer for the FAI, where it turned out that, you know, on, on the basis of some update from the club and the fact that Ward was going for a, a scan today on his knee, that um, rather than being, you know, inserted in the squad with a view to taking him out later, he'd been omitted from the squad with a view to maybe putting him back in. Um, and uh, O'Neill seemed quite surprised by that, which, which we were obviously quite surprised. <laughs> by, uh, but then I all got lost in the mixing the Declan Rice stuff. So um, yeah, look, we're not in a great place, really. Um, I mean, obviously Coleman. I think you know O'Neill sets huge store by Coleman's involvement, and I think he's viewed as it's kind of odd because you talk to Coleman, he wouldn't necessarily strike you as it's the most inspirational yeah, character. Yeah, yeah. yeah but the, the, you know, the players and certainly O'Neill seems to attach a lot of importance to his, his presence. So he's gone. He probably come over for the game, but he's not involved. And obviously, then that opens up this kind of the one of the kind of festering yes. uh, issues in the squad <laughs> which is um which is O'Neill's attachment to Cyrus Christie as 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 kind of first choice replacement at the expense of Matt Doherty who Who's which is uh, near, nearly which the is best an argument back yeah, in the Premier League Absolutely <laughs> it's an argument that uh, O'Neill really 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 at some point needs to to just take a step back and maybe start again with a clean slate because he's um, at the moment uh, with each with each passing game it's 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 looking like he's he's he's, he's back to the wrong horse I can tell you one person who wouldn't pick Matt Doherty yeah. ahead of uh, or would pick Matt Doherty ahead of Cyrus Christie is Alan Shearer who yeah. last night on Match of the Day 2 went gave us harsh a kicking to a player as I've ever seen on Match of the Day Yeah it's look look. it seems uh, like Match of the Day the Match of the Day pundits have uh, have have bought heavily you know they've invested heavily in, in Matt Doherty's stock over the last <laughs> while um, there's barely a week goes by that they don't single out um, how outstanding he's been for Wolves and last night um, yeah sure eviscerated um, uh, uh, Christie after the highlights from the, the Arsenal game Much as Arsenal had done earlier in the Absolutely afternoon. yeah yeah it's a funny thing like from watching highlights it's, it's you know it can be tre- I saw bits and pieces of the game live and then um uh, then I was watching the highlights last night. It's difficult sometimes to kind of really get the full sense of that that stuff because you don't know obviously what's been selected mm. as a highlight and how representative this is of the pattern of the game. And they didn't show a huge amount of it because it was the first game of the day. Uh, although it was the lead game on this program, I wasn't. So they've shown a fair bit. And Arsenal were just sparkling. You know, I mean, the, the, the third goal was a thing of wonder. You know, uh, it was magnificent. It was like something in a kind of a knockabout game. Yeah. You know, you just couldn't think that a team would do it in, in football. The, in the, in the and you certainly wouldn't think that a Premier League team that has spent 
a lot of money during the summer would allow it to be done to them. It comes from Shirley just falling over as he tries to turn and he's not quite able to stay on his feet. And they, they go the length of the pitch diagonally across it, uh, three or four, uh, you know, outrageous. Wonderful first and, touch. Uh, and then yeah. across. And, and, and so if you go back, sorry, to the first goal, I was looking at that and I was looking at at, at uh, Christy and he starts walking back after, did he lose possession? If, if he didn't lose it himself, it's certainly kind of, a, the, the action is certainly very close to him. He starts walking back and then kind of realise, well, shows, starts showing a bit more sense of an urgency. And in the classic way of, of, of things that you see with Premier League footballers, or you see footballers at any level, really, you're thinking like, He's still in a position to make a difference here, but he sort of decides in his head that he's not. And mm. so he stops running and he stops. And there's still enough kind of, he's, by the time that, um, that, the, that, that the goal is scored, he's close enough, you think, to make some sort of intervention had he kept running, but he doesn't. So, you know, you're thinking, Jesus, like he, he, he doesn't look great for that goal. And then afterwards, when they go through, you know, you realise mm. a couple of them come from, a couple of the others come from down that same side. Uh, and and they, they point out how in, in virtually every instance, there's something, a similar story behind it from Christie's point of view. Um, so, I mean, Lacassette was outstanding, you know, a couple of the finishing probably for that first goal was probably, uh, it was a little bit out of the blue in the sense that even I know it's kind of daft thing to say about somebody who's six yards out, you know, but it's back to goal. It's just an amazing turn. Um, so maybe Christie at that stage you're still thinking there's still, still some play to come um, I suspect the manager deserved at least half the kicking that Cyrus Christie got <laughs> for just the way he set up the team well yeah, I mean they've, they've conceded a lot of goals they haven't kept a clean sheet since they came up they spent a lot of money and he tried to change things yesterday and he tried to change things and it didn't work he played 3-4-3 and so he's been playing a fat back four uh, he had an injury last week uh, which got Christie into the team uh, early in the game and they lost that badly so look they're not in a great they're not in a great place but um, but really I mean there was a lot going on yesterday that just shouldn't have happened now Arsenal are in a remarkable run of confident form at the moment so that's an issue but there you have you have Christie who's playing in that attacking role that O'Neill talks about him wanting to play he you know and, and he, maybe it's just that he wasn't familiar with it he, more a, a, a routine right back mm-hmm. who likes to get forward rather than a wing back who uh, really just didn't seem to handle the space behind him mm-hmm. and to know when to go with the runners so it was a difficult one but again I mean uh, meanwhile you know you have Matt Doherty yeah. having another cracker of a game, Wolves keeping a clean sheet and him scoring a goal. And Doherty could have had a, another couple of goals so far already in yeah. the season and his finishing hasn't been great. It's the one thing, but he's a right back. Like, yeah. you can't really criticize him for that. But he popped, banged it away yesterday. So uh, I, I, I would be astonished, really. It was, O'Neill is going to have to do some defending of the it will certainly if, uh, come up as the over him this time. Yeah, yeah. It will certainly come up as the week passes. Emma, thanks a million for that. Uh, thanks to Gavin and John who were in talking the rugby earlier. Thanks to you, Pat. Thanks a lot. Cheers to Declan behind the desk and we will see everybody next week thanks very much folks